Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Jamil Damji and James Daynard. How are you guys doing? Amazing, how are you? I'm great because this show is gonna be completely self-serving and an abuse of power on my behalf because I want to learn something about real estate from you guys. And so I invited you here so I can learn, but then we'll record it and so all of our listeners can enjoy and learn as well. Awesome. I'm excited because I love talking about deals. It's a deal. It's a deal junkie day. We get to look at look at properties and cut them up. Exactly. So if you all don't know, I have been investing for 12, 13 years, but I really just invest in long term deals. I've never wholesaled a house. I've never flipped a house, but I want to. Part of hosting this show, which is great, is that I get to talk to these very interesting people. But you also, or at least I, get extreme FOMO every time I talk to you guys or some of these other investors because I want and get to hear about all these cool new strategies. And these aren't exactly new, but all these great strategies that are working for you all. And I want to partake. So I've been thinking about flipping my first house with a partner because I live in Amsterdam, so I'm not going to be actively doing it. But I really have some fear about it, and I'd love to learn how to comp better, particularly because we're in this very weird market that is sort of correcting, and now it's a little bit hotter as of when we're recording this in early April, but it's very confusing to me. So I'm hoping that you guys can teach me a little bit about comping, particularly in this type of market. Well, Dave, it just so happens that comping is one of the Dear passions that I have, I, and it's it's interesting. People have so many fun hobbies. They fly fish. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, for instance, James Daynard likes to yacht. Yes, I find a zen-like, meditative release by comping houses. Is that I that I believe? I I, I definitely know you have a genuine passion for this. James, is the same true for you? Do you love this? I'm with him. I do love this. I'm a true deal junkie that likes looking at deals all day. Um, but I get the opposite effect. I don't get zen. I get like, it's like drinking 10 rock stars. <laughs> it's like when I find that deal, my adrenaline goes through the roof. <laughs> and so it's not zen. It's the opposite where I go. 
<laughs> I'm like, well, have you drank ten rock stars right before you comp that deal? Um, it depends on the time of day. Uh, <laughs> in the morning, I won't. I, I won't be that deep in. No, but usually I try. I, I do try to look for my deals and comp things first thing in the morning and the end of night. So like seven o'clock in the morning, ten p.m. at night. Open the day, shut down the day. So I guess it is a little zen because it puts me to bed. There you go. So I, I like I feel like I'm not missing anything if I do that last little check. Jamil, what is it that you love about comping so much? Well, I think the thing that is the most attractive to me with comping is that it's like math. You know, if you if you do if you follow the formula and if you plug in all the right variables and and put the puzzle together right you can come up with a very specific answer and and even though even though it, it, comping can be looked at as an art form as well as very like scientific the beautiful thing is is that creatively people can approach it from different ways but we very very uh often come to the same answer i love that approach and i've gained i've always respected it but i think what's happened over the last few years has proven that um, this is a real skill that investors really need to learn because from my perspective, you know, I have some training, um, and experience with machine learning and writing algorithms. And it's really interesting to see that. Although a couple of years ago, I would have assumed that machines would have been able to do this and do this better than humans. What's happened with iBuyers like open door and Zillow has proven that that's not true. And that there is still, um, a skill and, knowledge that you as an investor can learn and need to learn to do this really well. And so I am very excited to learn a little bit about this from you guys. Amazing. All right. So we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and James and Jamil are going to teach me how to comp. Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.
All right. So what we're going to do is James and Jamil both have different expertise and specialties. And so we're going to talk, each of them are going to share with us their comping philosophy. And we're going to start with Jamil. Jamil, can you just tell everyone, if you're not familiar, what comping is? Yeah, absolutely. So a comping, basically, it's short for comparing, right? We're comparing two houses to get a determination of the value of, of one. And in order for us to understand how much something could be worth once value is put into it. So like a, uh, an investment is made to beautify it or to uh, you know, bring it up to a current retail standard. You need to have some pretty common characteristics to be able to say, yeah, this house and this house compare, right? The way I like to think about it is you want to make sure that if you are growing apples, for instance, right, that the apples that you're growing are the same apples grown from the same orchard, the same tree, the same soil, and so that it's all very, very, very alike. That is how you can say this home could be worth this much because these factors all line up. Now, here's the thing, right? It's rare for everything to line up. It's, it's just not, it doesn't happen that often. Uh, now, again, builders lost creativity from like 19, early 1900s to like the mid 1900s, like 1950, 1960. There was so much variety in homes. Like, there, you know, you would have a, a Victorian next to, uh, uh, you know, uh, a colonial next to a Tudor next. And there's just like the, you, all these builders had all of these beautiful architectural designs that would make neighborhoods feel so different. And as building became more commercialized, you would find these master plan communities would have like five houses. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, they would just like reverse the, they would just like reverse the layout. Exactly. And it would be very confusing to walk into two of them. So it makes it easier for us to compare houses in, you know, as we've gotten farther and farther away from uh, the creative process. But, but because things don't necessarily always line up, we have to make adjustments. We have to be able to say, okay, well, if, if, if this house is, has an extra bathroom or if it's missing a bedroom, what would the adjustment in value be? And so what I did, Dave, is I sat down with 100 appraisers across the nation because as you may or may not be aware, I, I, Keegley, my wholesale company, we do business across the nation. So I need to be able to value homes across the United States and do it pretty accurately so that I don't make mistakes and I'm not purchasing homes and overpaying for homes or that I'm also not undervaluing homes and not offering enough, right? I need to be able to see what is the maximum amount I can pay for this house and it's in, in this condition uh, so that I can make good business decisions, right? And I can also then help the folks that are a part of my coaching or my franchisees make good business decisions. And so in interviewing these 100 appraisers, I found some very common rules. And these are rules that almost every appraiser follows. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can probably find the document in the description. Or if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, just check the show notes and there'll be instructions on where you can get this document. But I'd like to show you how this looks. Jamil, while you're pulling this up, can you just tell us why, like, why you need to be so good at this as both a wholesaler and a flipper? Like, what is the importance of being good at comping? Well, Great, great, great question, Dave. The reason why you have to be good at comping is because as real estate investors, we are trying to determine how much something could be worth if there's an actual opportunity here. And if we are looking to find an opportunity, we need to be able to know what's, what is it worth before a risk is taken or before money is invested. So as a business person, which if you're a real estate investor, you are a business person. As a business person, it makes sense for you to have a good understanding of how much things are worth. Yeah. So, cause like if I'm going to go flip a house, right, I need to, there, there's a few variables, right? I need to understand what the purchase price is. Yes. What the rehab costs are. And then the third one, which is where, how much I can resell the property for eventually, which is what, where comping comes in because, 
you know, you can get a very good idea of what you're going to buy something for. Eventually, you'll know exactly what that is. Um, as you become more experienced in flipping, which I am not, I assume you get better at estimating rehab costs. And so this is just seems like a crucial skill for both wholesalers and flippers and really any type of investor that's doing any sort of value add, even if you're going to do value add and hold on to something and rent it out, you still want to be good at this. Absolutely. Yes. And, and from the standpoint of a wholesaler, right? Why you would want to know how to comp is wholesalers are, 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 are selling potential. We're looking at a property and saying, this is the potential of this. If you, if you did this renovation or if you spent money here and, and fixed this here, the house could be worth this much. That's why I'm owed, or that's why I believe that you should pay me five or ten thousand dollars to give you this opportunity to right. to flip because I'm showing you what the potential that exists in this property is. If you're a flipper, you need to know if I buy this house for this much money and I spend you know fifty or sixty thousand dollars renovating the house will i actually be able to sell it for this value and make money or am i going to just break even and lose money if you're a buy and hold investor if you are buying a home and then renovating it and then hoping to refinance it and pull your cash out you need to know what it's going to appraise at and that's why these appraisal rules are so important regardless of whether you're a wholesaler a fix and flipper or a buy and hold person it's important for you to understand how to underwrite and determine value. Beautiful. I love it. All right. So you have some appraisal rules that you use basically for comping across the country. Is that right? Correct. The appraisal rules, again, like I said, have been derived from interviewing 100 appraisers across the nation. And these were the commonalities that I found. Now, before we move any further, I do want to say for 2023... We are wanting to use comps that are no older than six months. Right now, appraisers, they, in fact, they would prefer to use a comp that is no older than 90 days, but they will go as old as six months, but no older than that because we're all aware the market has shifted and you can't use comps that are older than six months because the direction of the market has changed. And can you just give us some context? Like, what do you, in normal times, how old of a comp would you use? Well, before the market turned, appraisers would have gone back as far as 12 months and, and because the market was going in one direction. So here's the thing. If there was a comp that they found that was 11 months old, because the market was still going in the same direction, meaning things were worth more than they were 11 months ago, you could use that comp from 11 months ago because the market... The house was only worth more than what that number was giving us, right? So, so an appraiser, if there weren't a lot of sales available or a lot of sales activity available, instead of leaving a subdivision, which we'll talk about here shortly, instead of leaving a subdivision, appraisers would time travel. So they would actually go back, and you can see this right here. It was better to time travel than leave the subdivision, whereas now it's actually better to leave the subdivision, then time travel. That's interesting. So in a normal time, right? So let's say in 2021, if you were to get a comp that, if, it, if the appraiser goes out and gets a, creates a comp and they find a great comp from nine months ago, with how quickly the market was growing, were they adjusting it? Like saying, okay, we know the market generally went up five to 10% or are there comps really, like if there's no good ones in the area, are they generally just older and not taking into account the last six, nine, 12 months of data. Yeah. They're not going to just give you appreciation without evidence. Okay. Yeah. It, and, and the reason for that, Dave, is because the job of the appraiser is to protect the lender. So they're being conservative. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, and so unless there's actual evidence to prove that value exists, they're not going to just extrapolate it for you and, 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 and give you an additional 5 or 7% of value on your house. Because again, you know, the, the way that it's looking, they want to protect the asset. They want to protect the loan. They want to make sure that, that their number is accurate. And they'd prefer, their num they'd prefer their assessment to be more conservative than accurate. So now looking at these appraisal rules, uh, again, 
we always want to try to stay within the same subdivision. So that's something that appraisers will typically do. I've seen many would-be wholesalers or fix and flippers make errors where they will ignore a comp within a subdivision. So a viable comp within the subdivision, and they'll actually leave the subdivision to tell a better story of value. Hmm. Appra- actually, wholesalers are very, very, very guilty of this because they're trying to share or trying to to paint a picture of what a property's potential is and they will just ignore (laughs) they'll ignore Mm -hmm. a house in the same subdivision you know behind our subject house or one a couple doors down and opt to use a, a, a a sale from a completely different neighborhood just to try and prove that this house if having an investment made to it could be worth you know, $100,000 more than what it should be. So generally speaking, you don't want to leave the subdivision. Because like, right, because other, otherwise you can comp like something that's maybe as the crow flies a tenth of a mile, right? Yes. And so it looks like it's close, but it's in a different subdivision and might have different quality of homes or just a totally different character or whatever it is. Exactly. Have you ever been in a neighborhood? It's, and this is very, very uh, common in these major metros in the United States. But have you ever been in an area where you walk for two minutes and the neighborhood just completely changes? Yeah, of course. From a, yeah. a few streets over, it's like we're, we're, we're talking about night and day difference. Totally. Yeah. And so this is what this is the reason why, right? You don't want to be looking at properties outside of your subdivision if there's comps that exist there because things can change one block over, right? It's funny here in Phoenix, Arizona, we have these historic districts and and you can literally be looking at a house in a historic district and one street over, it's not in a historic district. You're outside of the historic district and the values drop by $100,000 or more. Right. So it's really important to pay attention to these things, right? So, so again, you want to try to stay within the same subdivision. Another rule that appraisers will use is they won't use or compare properties that are more than plus or minus 200 square feet apart in size. So here's the reason why. As a house gets larger, its dollar per square foot value starts to decline. Okay, smaller houses have a higher dollar per square foot value. So what many uh, uh, wholesalers who are just getting started accidentally do is they'll see a renovated comp, say it's a thousand square foot house. And there's, let's just say the subject house they're looking at is 3000 square feet. So it's the largest house in the neighborhood. They'll mistakenly take the dollar per square foot of that thousand square foot house and they'll apply that dollar per square foot to a 3000 square foot house. And now they've got this crazy number they think this house is worth because they used an incorrect dollar per square foot extrapolation. So you can only use the dollar per square foot extrapolation plus or minus 200 square feet. That makes sense to me, but I'm like, if it was a big house, like let's say it was 4,000 square feet versus 4,400, like does the same, does, do you know, does the same principle still apply? Yeah, I, I think that that rule starts to get a little bit m- less constrictive as you get yeah. larger in home, right? So it, it would make sense to me that you could use a 4,400 square foot comp and a 4,000 4, square foot house. I, 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 that makes sense. And, and that, that 10% does feel right. However, it's still less accurate. So if you can find, and, and again, the, the more you break these rules, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that your values becoming less and less and less accurate. Yeah, price per square foot's like a good value check, but I wouldn't ever use it to put the value on. And typically you can see where the clusters are in those segments, like 3,500 to 4,000 is going to be around this range, mm. 2,500 to 3,000. So you kind of go in like ranges of 10 to 20%, 10, and then you can, you can kind of narrow that price per square foot down a little bit more. Exactly. The next thing that you want to do is you're always wanting to make sure that you want to compare properties that are of the same type. So let's just say, for instance, you've got a single-story ranch and your comps are mainly two-story houses. So they're not the same, right? So you want to compare single-story ranches to single-story ranches. You want to compare two-story houses to two-story houses. You want to compare colonials to colonials, tutors to tutors. So you want to make sure that your property type is the same. 
again, another example here in Phoenix, Arizona, the pitch of the roof can even qualify as uh, a reason for a value discrepancy. For instance, single-story houses here in, in Phoenix, if they have a pitched roof, are worth roughly 10% more than flat-roof homes. So you want to you want to compare houses that are the same property type. Now, again, guys, the way to know if you've left a subdivision or not, I just follow this rule. If I've crossed any major roads, there's a chance I've left the subdivision. That's it. I, 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 can, I can keep myself pretty honest and I can keep myself pretty accurate by making sure you know, that I'm not crossing any major roads. Now, if you're using any comping tool, uh, typically major roads are different colors, you know, so you can just see, oh, the thickness of this line or the color of this line is different from all the other street lines or street colors. So this must be a major road. So whatever comping tool you're using, just try to get an understanding of what the legend is or what the the different colors or the different widths of the line stand for. Got it. And then the next thing that you want to pay attention to is the construction technology or what I call build generation. For the most part, appraisers will only compare homes that are within plus or minus 10 years of construction of each other. And that's because the technology of building has changed and it changes so rapidly. And, and pretty much every 10 years, the, constru- the construction technology is completely different than it was 10 years prior. Now, where this rule doesn't really apply is in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, there wasn't great strides in building technology made between like 1870 and 19. 19- 30. So we tend to find appraisers use home, uh, comps fairly liberally in those early, late 1800s and early 1900s. But once you get past like 1930, they typically don't like to compare homes that are more than 10 years apart in build construction year. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, again, as I'd mentioned earlier, you're not going to have the same house all the time. So let's just say, for instance, your subject house is a two bed, two bath, and the comp that you're looking at is a three bed, two bath. You need to be able to accommodate for that bedroom's value. Or let's just say your subject is a three bed, one bath, and the comps you find are three bed, two baths. You need to be able to accommodate for what that bathroom's value is. So these are general values that appraisers are using for bedrooms, bathrooms, pools, and garages. For a bedroom, that value can be worth anywhere from ten to $25,000, depending on the price point of the house. A bathroom is worth plus or minus $10,000. A pool, this, this value is the one that actually really irritates me the most. An appraiser will only give you plus or minus $10,000 in value for a pool here in Arizona. And I've built many pools, and I've never built a pool for $10,000. They, they cost upwards of thirty dollars to $50,000 to install, yet an appraiser will only give you $10,000 in value for it here. I heard once that pools bring down the value of houses in some neighborhoods. I don't, I'm sure in Arizona it's not, that's not true. But like, I grew up in the Northeast, and people never built pools because they apparently brought down the value of homes. Depending on where you live and the maintenance required, they can absolutely be a hindrance. And that's true. That was true. Like in the Pacific Northwest, you have a pool that's a negative, higher insurance, dangerous. But ever since the pandemic, that changed. Like it's all of a sudden pools got you a premium in Washington. Well, you use them like two weeks a year in Washington. Oh, and not only that, there's not very many pool companies here. So like you're paying two to three times more than you'll pay in Arizona for a pool. I got a couple quotes and I was like, no, not doing it. I'm filling this thing in. A garage is worth plus or minus $10,000 and a carport worth plus or minus $5,000. Now, again, this last adjustment is something that we want to take into consideration and it differs based on price point. I've seen many new wholesalers, new fix and flippers make this error. So guys, pay attention to this. If you are siding, backing, or fronting traffic, commercial, or multifamily, you have to make an adjustment in value. So let's just say, for instance, you're in the price point under 500000 If you are siding or backing traffic, commercial, or multifamily, you want to adjust down $10,000. If you are fronting traffic or commercial, you want to adjust down about $20,000. But then when you get into more luxury price points over 500K, if you are citing traffic or commercial will give you a 10% hit. So instead of 10,000, it's 10%. If you're backing 
traffic, multifamily or commercial, it's a 15%. And if you're fronting, it's 20%. I actually just recently, we accidentally committed to and took down a house that was not only on a major road, but also fronted some commercial. And the comp that we had used to determine value was one street behind us. And the difference in value was over $100,000 when it all shook out and we were actually able to sell the property. We had had missed the mark by about 100K. So it was right on the money at 20% uh, for a value adjustment because of the traffic and the commercial that was there. Now, the last little bit that I want to say, and that's usually just for any additional dwelling units or basements, typically what I've seen, and and James is going to have a different... Uh, assessment of this but typically what i've seen is appraisers will typically only give you 50 percent of value for basements or ancillary dwelling units uh, depending on the level of finish but again that's regional and so that value may or may not be different in different markets so it's something that you definitely want to check into with fix and flippers or appraisers in your local area to see how much value they'll give you for basement renovation and for any ancillary dwelling units. Yeah, that's a huge point that Jamel just pointed out. And and it it is regional, so you got to look into it. But when you have a basement, if you have a thousand square feet up and a thousand square feet down, they're only going to count that square footage for value purposes at 50%. So you're looking at a 1500 square foot house rather than 2000, unless you have full egress going out of the property. Like if you have a full, like in Washington, if you have full egress, you dig down the basement, you put sliders in and you can egress out, they'll give you a hundred percent value. Like a walkout. A walkout basement. Yeah. Yeah. What about like a, uh, a dadu? Uh, Dadu, they they give you 100% value for the square footage in in Washington. And then they'll they'll look at it. They kind of do it two different ways. A lot of times they do it on a rental approach if you're keeping it in. Well, it depends on the lender that you're putting together. But um, they're going to use it based on either rental approach if you're keeping it as a rental. But in Washington, we can condo them off and give them their own parcels. And so they'll give us full straight value. Um, they they were extremely difficult to comp two years ago because there wasn't very many. Now there's a lot more. So what they used to do is actually take small single family houses on small lots and then townhome comps. And they would blend them together to get the value um, prior to having the data points. Now, luckily, we have a lot more data points. It's easier to put values on them. Yeah, I was curious because I uh, for everyone listening, uh, DADU stands for Detached Accessory Delicate dwelling unit basically like you know a little second unit uh call it a mother-in-law suite something like that that's not attached to the primary home and in washington as i understand james they have re they have quote unquote upzoned a lot of the single family plots so that you can add these things so and they're talking about doing the same thing in colorado right now um and so i was curious because that seems pretty important for comping. If you were going to add add those types of things, what kind of value you get for it? Oh, yeah, extremely valuable to understand that. In Arizona, the dad use are still only getting 50% of value. So unfortunately, uh, I think, and it just has to do with inventory and, and we're not as constricted as the Pacific Northwest or places like Los Angeles where uh, that dad who has like a, a major selling point here in Phoenix, Arizona, they're still only giving you 50% of value for them. Yeah, Phoenix is a lot bigger city, so the density's not as, you know, Seattle's tight, so the de- they, they're all over the density. All right, so are those your rules, Jamel? These are the appraisal rules, and I would highly suggest that anybody who is really planning on becoming a full-time real estate investor, you learn these rules and you you commit them to memory the more you comp, the more you look at properties and and try to determine how much stuff is worth, the better you will be at it. it. Getting good at comping doesn't just happen naturally. You have to practice at it. And I would suggest putting in as many reps as possible so that you get really good at, at understanding value. For myself, David, I became the most important person in my company because I... I'm the best comper there. That's it. You know, I, I'm the one that they go to to make sure that we're not making a mistake in the commitment. I'm the one they go to to ask how much is something worth. And so because of that, I'm just 
always going to be the most popular guy. <laughs> You're a popular guy for many other reasons beyond that, but that's a good skill to have. Thank you. All right. Well, Jamil, thank you so much for sharing this. And again, anyone who wants to check out these tips, Jamil has very generously made that available to everyone. You can find those in the show notes or on biggerpockets.com. All right, let's go to James. And from what I understand, we were talking offline. James, you have a slightly different approach because whereas Jamil is comping things on a national basis and has to be really good at this without intimate market knowledge, Jamil, I assume you're that that makes sense. Very broad, yeah. But James, you are, you know, as you always talk about in the show, you really concentrate on one market. So how does comping change? with your style of investing. Yeah, and what Jimmel's doing and what he just talked about is so important because I've been investing in other deals in other states too with other operators. And having those general principles for a nationwide wholesaling or when you're doing more track style homes, it that, that will really help you get through your deals quickly. And so having those tools are really important. For us, It's a, we, we have the same general uh rules but for we're a metro flipping company right and we work inside infill areas very tight density spaces which have you know a lot of concentration of population in a small area and so what that means is there's a lot more variance in a small area like when you're looking in phoenix arizona it's a bigger short plat you might go in, going into other subdivisions they're a lot bigger whereas in seattle we have to say sometimes street by street where and and when you're dealing with an expensive market, the as-is comparables are kind of irrelevant to us. It's all about what is the potential of the property and the value add that we can uncover to make this deal more profitable. Can you just say more about that? What What is the difference there with as-is comps? And like, what is your approach? Does that just mean you're not restoring the house to, you know, in its existing format and you're thinking more creatively about totally renovating, adding new features, adding new bedrooms, adding new units. Is that sort of what you mean? Well, it's more what what am I paying for the property? If I'm looking at a property right now and I can pay, let's say, 500000 for it. If I go on the MLS and I find like-for-like like comparables, which maybe the home doesn't have a finished basement and needs some repair, what's the as-is value? Like, What would that house sell on market right in today's number for, for the condition that it's in? And when you're in more track home areas, the variance is going to be a lot different because the track homes are typically built a little bit better. They're newer, like Jamil was talking about. They have the same floor plans. And so there's not going to be as big of a variance on the as-is for the, the remodel. It will be kind of more standardized. But in metro areas where you're, you're typically finishing more space, adding more living space and adding more value, the, the swing in the comps are very dramatic. You know, like a 2,000-square-foot house – that's only half finished could sell for half of what a finished house would at that point. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in a lot, if I, if I'm looking at more broad areas, I'm still always referencing the as is, but if I'm in my core Metro, I'm really just looking at what the build out plan is. What's my total maximum build in square footage. And then how do I get there with a systematic construction plan, not just grabbing comps and then putting the house back together. And so a lot of the, the value created in the comps is based on what you're going to do to the property and how much heavy lifting you have to do. All right. So tell us how you do it. Yeah. And so in metro areas, when you when you have a lot of density and a, in, a, in a there's not very much inventory a lot of times. And then the other thing about these core metro areas like San Francisco, Seattle, Austin, they're expensive and there's a lot of money down there. And so a lot of times just buying a like for like renovation when you're buying a three bedroom, two bath house and selling it for a three bedroom, two bath house, the margin's not going to be there because the buy price will just be too high. And so for us in Seattle, we're always taking and we're looking at how do we increase the value. So how we do that is, you know, the first thing that, you know, my general rules for comping a property is I need to be on the search for how do I increase this and find that magical formula and plan that's going to get the highest and best use. And so we're always focusing on highest and best use, uh, which is going to turn into that value add. 
But when we're looking for these things, the first the first step we always do is pull the tax record because the tax record of the property is going to give us the general specs to what we can build out in there. That's going to give us the finished square footage, the unfinished square footage, what the current bedroom and bathroom counts are, what uh, what, what the um, what the buildable out plan could be to where we can add those in. So like if I'm looking at a house that's a thousand square feet upstairs, two bedroom, one bath, and I have a thousand square feet in the basement, I'm not really worried about the two bedroom, one bath because I have 2000 square feet that I can work in and I can build whatever I want in there. I can at least probably get a four bed, three bath with the right construction plan. And so I always pull the tax record because I want to know what the shell of the property is. What's my buildable square footage that I can work inside? And then the next thing I want to do is look at the other core aspects, which are going to be year built because that's going to tell me what kind of construction I need to do on that project, how rough it's going to be, what kind of uh, upgrades I'm going to need to do, the duration of time. And so when we're comping, we're also thinking about the value plan that we're putting in as well. Like if I have a home built in 1920s, I know that that property is going to require a lot more seismic upgrades because the wood is old, the framing was different, which could add three to six months on my plan as well. And so the, the, the core comping is also telling me how to underwrite the deal all the way through. It's not just for the value. But as we pull the tax record, the core things I'm looking at is buildable square footage, year built in the era. I'm looking for the style code of house. Is it a daylight basement? Is it a basement house? Is it a two-story? Is it a rambler? And then the other thing that we're really focusing on is what is the lot size and what is the zoning behind that? Because there's a lot of hidden value inside your land. And and, and that's where we have done very well flipping is not just looking at like-for-like remodels and going, oh, I can build this here and this is what my margin is. It's where is the hidden value. And so we spend a lot of time looking at the lot, what the topography of the lot is, and then what is the zoning in in that specific city, what do they allow for? Whether we can build additional units, can we subdivide it off? Um, Or maybe the lot's just good in a metro area and it's a little bit oversized, which in metro, if you have an oversized lot, you're going to get a huge premium, especially with the pandemic and people wanting to have a staycation. So those things make a big difference while I'm going through my tax record. So always pull the tax record. Then we're in, we go right to the street view because I need to know, like what Jamil was talking about, is you can stay in subdivisions on these bigger cities. With metro cities, street by street can vary dramatically where, you know, I could be one street over and the value could be 20% more. And then I could go another street over and that could be an additional 10% more. And, and so those make big, big variances on the street view. I also want to see what my neighbors are. Because during that time, if I'm going to sell a house, but I have maybe crummy neighbors, that's going to affect my resale in an expensive market by 5 to 10% sometimes. Because people are okay spending the money on a property, but they want to live in it, and, and they want to be able to go. So the street view tells me my neighbors. It tells me uh, what is my street condition. Does it have sidewalks or not? That could be a 5 to 10% bump just on livability feel. And those are things you have to check out for as you're comping because that's going to make a huge difference on how livable it is. Uh, the other reason we're checking for sidewalks is because that tells me utilities are there. That's going to tell me what I can do with that lot as I'm looking at the if – I, if I'm looking for hidden value but I have no utilities right there, it could be too expensive to bring in that extra unit in the back. Um, and so these little things can tell you a lot. Like just by going on Google Street, I can narrow, I can see there's going to be a 10 to 20% value swing just by looking at that. And so we go tax record, we look at the street, and then we start digging into our comps, which is going, okay, this is what we have, this is what we can build out. And then we pull three sets of comps every time. We're going to pull, you know, on the unfinished space, we're going to pull comps for the property with just the f- finished space that we're not adding the space into the basement. Then we're going to go highest and best use, which is looking at the total maximum square footage of the property and what can we fit inside there. And then that's going to give us the second value. And then the third value we're looking for is where is the hidden gold on the property? Like if, you know, if we have a 5,000 square foot lot with an alley in the back, which the street view is going to tell me, and it's flat in Seattle because of density, I can maybe add an additional dwelling unit there, which can dramatically change my numbers. And so 
every property we look at, we look at three different sets of comps, highest and best use with development, highest and best use with total maximum square footage, and then highest and best use for a simple renovation where you can get in and out of the project, not move as many things around, and click the deal out faster. Because sometimes building out the most expensive, best product is the worst plan because of the permitting and the time. Awesome advice. Thank you so much. And I do want to, James is going to share a deal with us and we're going to walk through one of the recent ones, but I just, it struck me while you were talking, James, and comparing it to Jamil that these two different sort of approaches to comping make a lot of sense relative to your business model. Like Jamil, I assume that you hear James's approach and you're like that's a great way to do this but that's his job because he's the flipper whereas like you're the wholesaler and you're you're sort of trying to figure out like just like the basics of how much it could get because it's not really practical for you to know what a flipper might want to do in terms of renovating or adding you know doing gut rehabs or just doing a cosmetic rehab is that right or or is this just um personal preference here well, I think, you know, we, we absolutely do do what James is talking about in certain pockets in, in our business as wholesalers. However, it is a lot fewer of those types of deals where we're, where we're actually chasing, uh, you know, a, a deep value add opportunity. We're, we are more in the volume business of, of, of selling like for like. Hey, Here's a 2,000 square foot, three bed, two bath. Here's a 3,000 square foot, three bed, two bath. This is this is the ugly house. This is the cute house. Um, uh, cute house is worth 500K. Buy the ugly for 350. Right. And then, but then like if the flipper does want to do the deep renovation, right, then they can, right? You've shown them that there's value just doing the simple thing. And if they choose to sort of do the more, you know, deep dive into this, like what James is doing, then that's up to them. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's, you know, again, it's pocket specific, city specific. And so if the neighborhood calls for it, for instance, and in, you know, where I live here in Phoenix, in Arcadia, we have value ads happen all the time. All like you're always looking at lot size, exactly what James talked about. You know, in, in Seattle, you actually can go very close to 100% lot coverage here in Phoenix, 42% max. So you can only you can only cover 42% of what a lot size is, right? And so we're still doing this similar thing. We just, the the number of instances that we will get that deep into it is like, you know, 5% of the time. All right, cool. Well, James, are you ready to share with us the uh, deal you got? Yeah, we, we actually just closed on this. And randomly, when I did my first underwriting, I didn't like the deal at all. Because I, I, I kind of flew through it really quick. And I was like, well, it's a lot of work for not that much money. How'd you find the deal, by the way? Um, so how we found the deal was actually a seller. He's a builder in Washington. And we've bought in 18 homes from him over the years because we make it so easy. And, you know, uh, from an investor standpoint, when you're doing B2B with other investors, it's, it's kind of an easier transaction. He understands the math. We have our math. And, and, and so we just... We he, we make it very easy on him. He's a very established investor, but because we're easy and we can be aggressive, and his skill set isn't doing renovation, so he doesn't want to do all the value add. So I can do it for a lot cheaper than him. And so a lot of times he just called me up and, and we just did another deal. Nice. Awesome. All right. So you didn't like it at first, though. I didn't like it at first because we I kind of, you know, I went through my surface underwriting really quickly. Um, and the reason being is... You know, because the location it was in, there it was on an oversized lot. So he, he called me up and he says, hey, we have this house. It's been a rental property of ours for 35 years. Um, it was a two-bedroom, one-bath house, 760 square feet on the main floor. And then there were 760 square feet in the basement that was totally unfinished. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking at that property and I'm going, okay, well, I have a tight footprint house, not the best thing for resale. And those are things I'm always looking at when I'm going through a deal is not just it was where, what is the square footage? Where is the square footage? Because if you have a 2000 square foot house with an unfinished basement, that's 300 square feet, that's actually going to be a lot more livable than a 2000 square foot house with a thousand up and a thousand down. And so at first when I looked at this, I'm like, well, I got a 720, I got a roughly a 1,580 square foot house, 
but it's not going to live really well. It's going to be tight. Two main floors, small bedrooms, small bathrooms. That's not great for marketability. So that was the first way I looked at it. I'm like, that's going to be kind of tight. It was in, I would say, a B-style neighborhood of Seattle. Not the prime part, but it's in a path of progress where market values have done well. Um, but that's also the mar- the markets that kind of compressed a lot over the last six months. And so I wasn't itching to be in this exact location because it was kind of a weaker pool. And so at first, I was like, well, I can buy this house. He, he, you know, he wanted to just get a number out of me. So the first things we did is, you know, we looked at the square footage, 720 up, 720, or 740 up, 740 down. I knew what I could work with. And then I also knew that I had a daylight basement house because I'd egress out. But then part of the, the square footage is not going to be above grade. So then what we did is once we looked at those comparables, I pulled two sets of comps. The first one was for was for a 740 square foot house with an unfinished basement that was completely renovated. Still new roofs, new windows, new plumbing, new wiring, and an establishing value at that point. Did you say 740 square feet? It's a tight one, yeah. Oh, okay. It's roomy. <laughs> I think the right word is cozy. Cozy, yes. Very, very cozy. Very cozy. Okay. You know, and so when we pulled up those comparables, I, you know, I'm looking at it kind of two ways. I'm going, okay, well, the reason I like looking at it this way is because it's fast. I can have that house renovated in six months, back to market. I'm selling that. I can put out my money, get it back in six months. It's a good velocity. The issue I was having was, was those comparables were only about $620,000 at the time. And, you know, I knew he was wanting to be around 500. So that is not going to pencil at all uh, for us. Also, that was going to require me to back my numbers down and be at an offer price of a brown more of 390 to 400 to him, which I did not feel was a good value to the seller. So I knew that wasn't an option because it wouldn't work for the seller. So then we went to the next set of comps, which was gutting the house all the way down to studs because the, the layouts were a little awkward in the property. And we had to take it all the way down the studs and optimize it into a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath house. And we were going to do a formal in-suite upstairs with a walk-in bathroom, closet, because all the comparables that we were seeing had the bigger bedrooms. Um, uh, Well, let me take a step back. As we pulled the comparables, we were looking at four bedrooms, two-and-a-half bath houses, but ones with formal in-suites and then ones without in-suites. The ones with in-suites were selling for 10 to 15% more than the ones without. And so for us as remodelers, we already know we're going to take the whole thing down the studs anyways. So it doesn't make a difference Mm. and cost that much whether we're doing that or not. And so we threw away the non-in-suite properties because we're still doing the same amount of work for to get a higher comp. So is that just something you know being in your area that like en-suite bathrooms is something you should be considering or like out of all the – you know, dozens of variables, but that between houses that you can consider, like, how did you identify that en suites were sort of like the difference maker there? Well, there's always your major selling features. And so when we're looking at comps, we're going through picture by picture on each house and we're reading the descriptions. Because if you just do it quickly, a four bed, three bath house won't comp for the same as a four bed, three bath house. It needs to have those amenities. So we're always checking for kitchens in suites because those are two big selling features. And then we're also checking for um, uh, layouts of bedrooms and baths. Like, where is the locational, right? If you're a one-bedroom upstairs and two in the basement, for, or let's say three in the basement, that's a, that's a worse resale product. Families don't want to have their kids downstairs. And so we're checking locations of spaces as well, uh, because those are big differences. Not every 2,000-square-foot house is the same. And so we're checking all those kind of finite details because as we're doing our construction plan, it makes a big variance in the cost too. Like if we're, if we're having to move all the bedrooms, all the bathrooms. And so we're looking for the highest, highest and best use at that time. That's awesome. So where did you come out with the, the final value there that you could get out of this property? So after we looked at it by adding the two, the, the two bedrooms in a, a bath and a half and creating the in-suite, the value of that property was going to be six ninety nine to seven or no seven twenty five at the time. So we were by doing the extra scope of work, it was increasing the value by over a hundred thousand dollars. 
the cost of that renovation is only going to cost me about six fifty thousand more to do that plan. So I'm getting 100% upside. But the thing I also have to look at when I'm looking at comps is how much time is that going to be? Because there's a cost to that debt. So my true cost may be fifty grand to increase the value of 100000 but I also had to account for the $20,000 I was going to incur in debt cost and whole cost. So that tells us what the highest and best use is with these technical plants. So at the end of the day, we're still getting a 30% margin increase by using the debt and the construction to increase the value. Jamil, what would you would you do anything differently? No, I think that it's uh it really interesting to hear the, you know, really creative ways to increase and add value. I have one of the harder things for me to have ever, you know, fought for with respect to an appraisal is is how much layout affects value, you know, and what what James is talking about with respect to where the bedrooms are located. He's 100% right. You know, of course, when you're talking about a family, families don't want their children to be on a different floor than where the, the, the parents are. It's, that's, a, that's a very real thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a buddy who turned out like a real up and we always make fun of him because he's the basement kid. All the siblings <laughs> lived, worked up, lived upstairs and they were all fine. His parents stuck him in the basement. It's been downhill ever since. I mean, look, I was a basement kid too. <laughs> <laughs> and look at you. All right, you proved it wrong. Well, I mean, you know, if you were looking at me, looking at me in my twenties, you'd be like, that guy's sure is sure is turning into a basement kid. Everyone can get out of the basement at yeah. some point. Yeah, you're you're a basement to to top floor success story. Yeah, but you know, it, it's interesting because I agree. There's absolutely um, an there is a there is an an untan, intangible value to that the, these nuances these different things uh i've just yet to see how that affects homes or how that has affected an appraisal in a deal that i've been involved in you know um i don't know how much uh, like what is the value for a better layout and how much can you give that property what james is doing is he's looking picture by picture and seeing okay well if you have the the ensuite it's worth, uh, you know, 20% more. I mean, I have, I, over here in, in, in our, cause we're so cookie cutter over here. It's, uh, it's, it, it's just completely different. So I love the artistic. I love the very, um, intricate ways that you can, I would say that the way that James is comping houses is, is artistic. The way that we comp it is, is very formulaic. Yeah. And the, the one thing you can do, as an investor is use your broker as the sounding board because an appraiser is not going to consider that as much uh, uh, a lot of times. They're not going to consider the better bath counts as much or livability and flow. That's what your broker's for. They're going to tell you, is this property more marketable? And if it's if it has a better perfected floor plan, typically you're going to get 5%, 10% more, and that can make a big difference when you're selling a million-dollar house. And so – you know, use the whole team when you're looking at at, at comping properties because um, it can make a huge impact. But there, this deal got even better though when we dug into it. What? Oh, it got way better. And this is what that pushed me over the edge because it was about looking at that highest and best use. When we were once I've kind of figured out I was in his range, we dug down in more because when we're looking at those numbers, we were going to buy this property. We ended up buying this property for four hundred and thirty-five thousand. We're putting one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars in the construction, and then we're going to sell it for six ninety-nine to seven and a quarter when we established our comparables. And so the margin on that, after you turn it and you take nine months and the hard money costs, it actually ends up being like sixty, seventy thousand dollars in profit. Which this is a lot of work for that much money. And and so that's where I was having the hesitation. And so going back to that metro cities. You can take a very average deal that might not be worth the effort and maximize it because the next thing I looked at was the size of lot. And the size of lot was a 6,800 square foot lot, which is big for Seattle. Typically, they're four to 5,000. It was zoned single family. So if you just look at that very surface level, you're going, you can't build anything more there because it's SF 5,000. So one house per 5,000, you're short. But with the density increase, they're allowing you to air condo off. Uh, cottages. And then in that cottage or the dadu, we can then build a unit in the back, condo it off and sell it as a separate property. But there's a couple things you have to watch out for when you're comping these. When you put a structure in the back of the property, my property that was worth 725 is now going to go down in value 
my lot size is shrinking, it's more congested. And so we have to adjust that down. And we get in the things that you have to consider on those values is where is your parking? Sometimes you're losing parking by doing this. Parking in Seattle can be a difference of $100,000 if you have a parking spot Whoa. because of the amount of density and then there's a little bit more crime right now. And so you have to adjust that. So we ended up, we're planning in the DADU. And then based on that data, we had to come up with two new comps. One is how much is that property value coming down? And so then we started looking for comparables with properties with backyard cottages as well. And we were only focusing on that, which brought our value down from 725 to 675 uh, because we were still going to have parking and we were still going to have a yard. So if we wouldn't have had a yard or parking, it would actually have been 599 So really digging in those core attributes. The next thing we had to do was, what data do we build in the back? Do you build a two-bedroom, two-bath with no garage? Do you, can you get a one-car garage in? Can you get a two-car? Because a data in the back, when we pull comps, if it had no parking, no yard, was worth $599. If it had a one-car garage in a small yard, it was worth $800. What? So the swings are that big. What? Same square footages, same designed houses, but the wow. livability factor, because they didn't feel like they're in a backyard condo. They feel like they're in a house. In a single family home, yeah. And so then I had to revisit the site and go, what can I huh. fit here? And then we, you know, and then from there, we figured out we could get a two car garage on this property, a two bedroom, two and a half bath, 1,100 or 1,000 square foot daddy with a yard. That's worth 800 grand. So my combined value just went from seven or from 725 on the high. To over, uh, we're looking at the daddy's worth more than the house in the back. So yeah, it's not a. I mean, it is a daddy technically, but you're just building a second house. But it's it's permitted and condoed off as a daddy. That's important because if if we were subdividing it, it would take six months to nine months longer than doing oh, the daddy. Okay. And on that cost, that's a hundred thousand dollars in hold cost at that point. And so it, you know, so when we're pulling comps. It's not just about finding like for like. That's important, but it's the scenario. What is how are we moving it up and down? What what is that magical highest and best equation that might be the most amount of work, or maybe it's do the least amount of work and get your velocity of money going? Get in and out, turn it. Because at one point I was really thinking about just doing a two bed one bath, turning it because my cash on cash return was actually higher than the bigger project. I love this because you know a lot of times, especially in recent years when deals have been difficult to come by. We've say on bigger pockets and lots of other real estate educators say that like you can't always find deals. You have to make them. And I think this is a perfect example of like making a deal. And obviously not everyone can do this type of construction, but uh, it just proves that thinking creatively and finding the best possible use of your property can make something great out of what at first pass, appears like it's not going to be profitable at all. Yeah, and that's where the talent of comping is so important. You unfind, Like I heard for two years, you can't find deals. There's no deals. Our favorite deals in the most amount of properties I buy are ones that are sitting right on market, publicly advertised for sale, that have been on market for six months. And, and you couldn't cut – people just were looking at it one way. Whereas if you, you know, my what my passion is looking at a deal that everyone says is a bad deal and cutting it up four to five ways and finding that magical equation to where it goes from a dud to a home run. And and that's why in if you're in those core metro areas, the, the properties are expensive. The values, you can get the upside, but you have to put that perfected plan together. That's by understanding values and then going, okay, what can I do to maximize this deal, but not overcomplicate the plan? Well, I love it. That's a perfect way to get out of here. Uh, thank you both so much. I'm going to try and flip a house, hopefully with you guys. Yeah. Let's do it together. I think it would be super fun. Uh, we'll make some content out of it. But I learned a lot. Uh, one quick question for you guys. I know we have like two seconds. So can you tell me really quickly, how do you adjust this if you're in a market that's correcting? Like, Are you taking these comps and then adjusting them down? in the comping process or are you padding your construction budget or your margins? Like how do you adjust um, to make sure that you're not comping against a market that will have changed in six to nine months? 
for me, if I'm using comps that are 90 days old or newer, I feel pretty confident that we've adjusted for market condition. Yes, uh, here's here's the other thought. I, I'm seeing the market actually improve, so I don't feel like we're going to be worth less by the time I come to market on my on my uh, renovation from this point. As long as I'm using comps that are 90 days uh, older or new, and then I'm also looking at pendings. Where are where are actives and pending sitting? Because that's going to tell me the direction of where things are going as well. Yeah, Jamil nailed it. Recent comps, or we use comps with similar interest rates. So we're going, okay, what, what, what is the rate at? Let's look at what the market was doing at that time. And then pendings, pendings are key because that is the most up-to-date and then communicating and talking to those brokers because they're also telling you how many bodies are coming through that house. And if, if they're pending at full price, but they had six people come through in the weekend, I'm going to feel good that that market's going to hold. If they were on for 45 days and they had one offer with very little showings, I might bring the value down a little bit. Okay. Yep. And so it's about velocity of people as well. All right. Well, we got to get out of here. But thank you guys so much. This was a lot of fun. We went way over because I was learning a lot. And I hope everyone listening learned a lot. Thank you, Jamil and James. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.